You know what? Screw you. We're going to do a podcast anyway. <laughs> uh, why do I fear that's going to be in the outtakes? Uh, it could be. Today is Monday, April 27th, 2015, and this is episode 115 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hey, Jerry. How you doing, man? Doing well. How are you? I am good. It's it's Monday, which is, you know, and Boston, or, uh, Baltimore is burning, so, you know, typical Monday. That's true. That's true. There's, uh, you know, and I... I don't even think Bob was involved in this one. Have we confirmed that? No. He was, oh, we haven't heard from him in Nepal yet, have we? No. See, that's why I don't think he was involved in this. It's true. Anyway, uh, just a reminder, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employers. Because given how insensitive we are, we would all be fired. That's true. Except Bob. No. Yeah, and by the way, you can follow uh, Bob on Twitter. He, did he finally tw- did make a Twitter? He, he did finally make a Twitter. I thought he swore he would never do that. I, I don't know. I mean, that's that's one step away from anonymity. Yeah, it's infosec underscore Bob for anybody who's interested. So um, so anyway, first, uh, first item for this evening is the High Tech Crime Investigation Association Conference, which is coming up August 30th through September 7th, 2nd, sorry, in Orlando, Florida. Uh, tickets are 750 bucks, uh, but if you use the discount code Defensive Security, you'll save 10%, and uh, we have roughly four or five days left where we are giving away a ticket uh, just by mentioning us on Twitter, and uh, we will put you in a lottery to potentially receive a ticket. Uh, but again, you know, we we want to give it to someone who can go. Looks like a great conference. Uh, I'm definitely going. I think Mr. Callett's still trying to work it out. But uh, anyway, if you're uh, if you're able to, looks like a good one. Uh, the other one is uh, DerbyCon. You know, we we're, we're hyping it up, so you know, we maybe there'll be some extra, you know, some other people to go have beers with us. Uh, that's, uh, I think at the end of September. So look for that one. Anyway, uh, moving on to our first story. This one comes from the wall street journal. And, uh, the title here is five simple steps to protect corporate data. Because they're so simple. They're, it's, it's all you got. It's just five. It's, it's simple. If you just knew these five, you'd, you'd be done. I don't, I, it's only five. I don't understand why, you know, these can be fortune cookies. That's what I'm trying to say. That's true. It's only five. So the first step to keeping your data safe is to keep up with patches. Pretty revolutionary. Uh, nothing magic there. Uh, second one is to keep your online doors closed. And <clears throat> this one, I think, does bear a little bit of discussion because I have seen this quite quite a lot, and they they reference a couple of um, a couple of breaches that you know were, were involved uh, some systems that companies didn't realize were up and available, and and were hacked. Like I think they they mentioned the uh, healthcare.gov website was was breached through a test or dev server that they didn't realize was connected to the internet. Because, you know, who does asset management? Fair enough. So um, so keep a tight firewall policy is kind of what they're saying, huh? Absolutely. You know, you, I, I've had this debate. Inbound and outbound. That's right. For the record. That's right. And, you know, treat any, uh, treat any system that shows up on your network that isn't in your inventory as, you know, as suspect. It should be considered, in, in my view at least, in most organizations, it should be considered a, you know, potential security risk or security incident that needs to be investigated. And that'll, you know, in my experience, that will help, uh, that will help 
make sure people follow the right process. I think for a lot of companies, that's actually pretty difficult. I think, A, they'd have to first have asset management. B, they'd have to have a way of detecting when new things show up. And three, they'd have to have people to go deal with that. And Q, that's, you know, they got bigger fish to fry. I don't disagree with you. Oh, I'm just whatever. saying that, that it's, you know. Whatever. And I can't count you, today. You know. I do know. Like you know. I do know. No, so, so one of the one of the things I had had been working on is uh, reconciling using a sim to reconcile against an asset management database. You know, if you have, especially I think for potentially some smaller, more nimble organizations, I think this is a reasonable thing to go and you know to go look at. You if you have if you have feeds coming off of your network devices, IPSs, firewalls, and whatnot, look for look for traffic emanating from an IP address that's not supposed to be talking, even if it's being blocked. You know, go go research it. No, I, I get your point. Your point's valid. That not everybody has the ability to do that. And no, it's good. Uh, you know, I even like really tight outbound firewalls. Here's the trade-off. It's going to make your IT guys a lot busier. They need to have the cycles to do this stuff. Otherwise, their responsiveness is going to be too slow, and people will get pissed off, and they'll go do shadow IT at cloud. Yeah. That's kind of counter to the whole DevOps thing, too, isn't it? It is. So, you know, I like it, but you've got to keep in mind the responsiveness of your organization and what they're going to demand if you're going to put up that many roadblocks. That's fair. I don't disagree. Number three is encrypt your data. Just randomly? Just yeah, randomly. And I I would like to point out that there are there there is pieces of code that often comes down in your email and uh, from your web browser that will do this for you. Whether you want it or not. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Uh, And and, you know, they'll they'll keep it safe and you'll have to pay some money to get it back. But you know, other than that, actually, there is a there's a comment in here that I wanted to 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 point out, and I think it was a, a Gartner analyst that made it. And the quote is, "You can't rely on people; you have to rely on technology." And you know, on the one hand, I kind of understand that and I agree with it, and on the other hand, you know, I can't help but think, well, it's people that make the technology and deploy the technology in bad ways, so. For now, soon, Skynet will take over. But until we get there... True. We're stuck. So, here's my standard rant on encryption. you got to know what you're doing with encryption. Encrypting by itself is not a panacea. Understand what the encryption is actually defending for and against. Right? If you're just doing full disk encryption on your database server, it's not doing you a whole lot of good. So, think not- about why and how you're encrypting. That's a that's a good point. I I have been uh, I have been looking at some pretty innovative data encryption technology that that um, you know helps. But again, I think some of that stuff is very expensive and potentially out of the out of reach of a lot of organizations. Yeah. But there are some pretty pretty neat uh, encryption technologies that will you know what will solve i'm not going to go so far as to say it'll solve all of your problems but you know will what <laughs> will certainly help out in in quite a few different uh, different avenues you're you're thinking about deploying rod 13 again aren't you uh, base 64 mm-hmm. encoding mm-hmm. yeah uh-huh. T- totally random oh. so carrying on anyway uh number 4 is get rid of passwords obviously Go to factor. Okay, again, very much a trade-off between usability and risk here. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what this is. So and cost and cost. You're correct. Both cost to uh, you know acquire the solution and maintain and run the solution. Help desk cost, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, <laughs> I always go back to the my little story about <clears throat> being called into the CEO's COO's office and being told that I. You know, one of my tasks was to go and uh, and uninstall our two-factor system because the executives and salespeople thought it was too cumbersome. Yep. And that happens, and, you know. Yep, absolutely. So I would say 
be selective in your password use. I don't think all accounts are equal. And I'd say certain higher privileged accounts and more sensitive accounts would more rationally dictate uh, other authentication mechanisms. Yeah, the and, and those that are accessible from the internet. Yeah, absolutely. You know, your your Twitter <laughs> well as um as uh, Tesla learned, right? Although their stock price jumped, so it was a good event for them. Yeah, <clears throat> we didn't we didn't include it in uh, in this week's uh, stories, but there was a story about how institutional investors shun companies that have been hacked, and you know every shred of objective evidence I've seen is counter to that. So, including a really interesting talk by Dearest Leader at B Size Atlanta. Uh, agreed. Yes. Remind me to make a note to talk about my talk finally being posted. We'll come circle back. Awesome. I All should right. have put that in the show notes. But Well, you All still right. can. They're not posted yet. That's true. <sighs> but by the time they hear this, it'll be posted. So I'll be speaking in future tense to past events, which can be confusing. It's like time travel. No, it's not. <laughs> All right, whatever. Uh, moving on. <laughs> Check your vendors, and this is a this is a uh, I would say an emerging uh, an emerging one. Certainly, top of mind, you know, post Target and post some other breaches. But it's also a very difficult one, especially the larger you get. And I, I think it's a difficult problem for every company um, because it's it's really hard to spend enough effort. To really understand where your vendors are at, you know, so you end up with this spreadsheet kabuki dance that I, I like to call it, where you know you send them a <clears throat> you send them some crappy questions and they'll send you back some crappy answers, and everybody hopes that nobody checks. And uh, and and that's that's a it, it's very very difficult to get past that. I, I completely agree, and so I don't I don't know that. Obviously, we have to do something. And obviously, this is a huge area. I don't know that auditing our partners and vendors really works. I think I'm leaning more towards treat them all as hostile. Treat them as the internet. Treat them as, you know, give them minimal access necessary to get their job done and put them in a little box and treat them as hostile and watch the hell out of them. But then again, that may not be always viable either. Yeah, I think that's... You know, depending on the vendor too, and I think the other the other opportunity you have is to try to segment your vendors up into the kinds of access they have. You know, what what kinds of sure. what kinds of impacts could they have if things go horribly wrong? And you know, keep in mind that if you were to talk to the the IT department at Target, you know, in uh, six months before their breach. They 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 may not have put their mechanical contractor on that list, so you really have to think through. You know, you have to think things through, right? It's it's not always obvious. Yeah, perhaps war game out. Okay, if bad guys got into vendor X and they came at us over that link, what could they do? Yeah, absolutely. But I do, I really do like your idea that you need to to the extent you can treat them as hostile. Um, but again, you know, if you're outsourcing your IT, you know, that's, yeah, um, that's another that, huge issue. I, I, I completely agree with you that auditing, especially based on written questions is just BS. Yeah. It's a feel good circle jerk activity. It is not valid. It's for entertainment purposes only. <laughs> I, I like that. I like that. Um, so they they do mention in here that there are some emerging you know, some companies coming out to try to fill that void like Bitsight, you know who and to be honest I don't fully understand how they do what they do but you know basically what they're trying to do is sell to companies you know some kind of a security hygiene score of other companies and I first came across this in the context of cyber insurance because apparently it's uh, it's becoming a thing for uh, insurance companies to, you know, to to obtain this kind of intelligence on their uh, on their customers to try to figure out 
you know, kind of roughly, well, what kind of risk are they? Uh, but apparently they're extending out to, you know, to, to just general companies who can look to see, well, okay, is my, is my mechanical contractor, you know, completely owned by, uh, you know, by bots or, or whatever. So, you know, it's, it, it, it seems like there are some potentially innovative, but I'm sure costly solutions on the horizon. All right, so moving on to our next story, which comes from Politico, which I do think is the first on the show. It's true. We do try to avoid uh, politics. And it the, happens occasionally, but we try. Yeah, and this is a, a, a somewhat uh, apolitical story. The title is Researcher Sony Hackers Used Fake Emails. Shocking. Yeah, so uh, so the, the CEO of Silence... Uh, told the reporter for of this article that uh, while whilst he was rooting around in the uh, the stolen pot of Sony email, he found first. First off, I found it entertaining that the CEO is actually still doing forensic work. I did want to kind of comment on that briefly. Yeah, well, I do wonder if it was actually him. Oh, okay. That that is a fair conjecture. Uh, Carry on, because. We've both worked for companies where the CEO went out and gave that impression when it may not have been true. <gasps> no. May not have been true. Not not definitely was not true. It's tough when you're busy snorting coke in the office to actually do real work. <laughs> Woo. Wow. Yeah. That was a long time ago. The statute of limitations is run on that, I'm sure. Totally. Totally. Anyway, um, so yeah, they apparently this uh, this company Silence got a copy of the stolen email, started rooting around, and found quite a few, uh, you know what what appear to be Apple, uh, you know Apple account fishes, and so the the hypothesis they have is that they uh, the, the attackers fished. Apple IDs out of employees and then in turn use that to move into, of all things, LinkedIn profiles. And from there, they uh, they got email addresses and user, well, I think they actually say usernames at Sony. And uh, so they, they now had passwords and they had usernames and they kind of hoped and prayed that you know, some of those were being reused at Sony, and, a, and the hypothesis here is that, in fact, that probably was the case. That they they did find some password reuse between the Apple ID and and uh, uh, you know their their Sony work IDs. So once again, phishing being the initial attack vector. Yeah. Yep. And, and once again, we'll, two factor could have helped. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, right? Yeah, that's the answer to everything. But, you know, how many companies are really taking phishing, you know, hardcore seriously and, and deploying dedicated anti-phishing technology? You know, if if there's any vector, I think, that is likely to need extra love to fight, it's phishing. That's the one that we're getting nailed on over and over and over again. And, you know, we've said it many times in the show. User awareness training is not sufficient to stop this problem. Yeah, and I, I keep button heads with people on that point. You know that the solution that who think that really the solution to this problem is just better training, and and you know absolutely I think that better training can lower your operational costs and you know reduce again as we talked about in the past right it can reduce the number of of problems you have but it's not going to drive it to zero. And, you know, if you have a, if you've got a, an, an adversary like this, who sends it to hundreds of your employees, you know, it only takes one or, or two. And, yeah. And, and that's all you in. need. That's all you need. I mean, they, they can be right one out of a thousand and they've got that crack in the door they need to get in. Exactly. And, and again, people are unreliable. I'm not saying there isn't value in training and that you can't have folks be trained and use them as an early warning mechanism, that sort of thing. But 
we've seen we were just talking about this uh recently that the, the the time to click through is so quick yeah it's like a minute and 22 seconds or something like that yeah you got to have some technology technology controls trying to fight that at least helping are they perfect no but neither is user awareness training right yep agreed i i i really I'm becoming much more convinced that something radical has to change because the you know, fishing is becoming so pervasive and so easy. You know, we're we're kind of approaching the you know the the, the proverbial single singularity. You know, where something just something has to change, or we're going to slide into the ocean. You know. <laughs> Force all email to be plain text with no links and no attachments? Well, you know, I've made the joke on Twitter that I have the solution, and that is to move everybody back to dumb terminals with, you know, Pine email. You know, the, we can solve this problem. We, we, we know how to do it. Yep. Somebody the other day was had an interesting idea. Uh, tagging all email that comes in from your external MXs with external in the start of the subject line as a way to help you spot internal fish. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Again, you still need attentive people, but it could be an easy training point. Yeah, that's a that's a really good idea. So I don't know how well it works in production, but somebody was talking about it the other day, and I thought that was kind of clever. Yeah. Yeah, and, and also I would say to... Uh, Make sure your employees know not to pay attention to emails from their boss's personal account. <laughs> or just from their boss. Well, that too. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so moving on. Speaking of not paying attention to things, the next story comes from Japan Times. And the title is... Oh. Where we get approximately 38% of our articles, by the way. That's true, yes. We are. Big fans of Japan Time. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, they're they're right up there, right, right, awesome. right after the Huffington Post. They are your number one news source for breaking Godzilla related news. Oh man! See now you did it. What you you've you've offended a large swath of our listener base. I I don't understand anything I said that was in any way factually incorrect. So you're saying that Godzilla is at fault for TEPCO not updating 48,000 Windows XP PCs? Not at all. I'm saying Japan Times would be your breaking Godzilla news. Okay, so you're saying if there were a Godzilla story, (laughs) Japan Times would be the place to get it. Yes. I, I get it now. I'm sorry. I yield. I yield. You're right. Fine. Anyway, so let's let's talk about Windows XP. Yes, so uh, Tepco, uh, Tepco, you may remember as the uh, the company who ran the ill-fated Fukushima uh, uh, nuclear power plant that, uh, that had a small problem after the earthquake back in 2011, and they they were of course the subject of lots of um, armchair quarterbacking. Uh, after that and you know how they managed their operations and designed their facilities and whatnot apparently and i didn't actually realize this but apparently the japanese government i guess all but took over tepco in the wake of that um but you know they uh they apparently figured a way to save 30 million dollars that sounds like a good idea how'd they do that they, the way they were going to save $30 million is by keeping their fleet of 48,000 Windows XP workstations uh, on Windows XP until 2018. Wow. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what the significance of 2018 is. Like, I don't know if that's, you know, they're just skipping a update cycle. Yeah, probably budget cycle. That's probably when they'll be fully depreciated or something, or however that works in Japanese tax code law. Yeah, I, I don't know, but uh, yeah, you, you know, here's what one of the things that that I wanted to, one of the reasons I wanted to include this is 
because I'm wondering if over time we're going to see more and more of this. Well, so let's finish the story real quick, right? Sure. So uh, the auditor basically said you can't do that for security reasons. This was kind of the point. Yeah. Said, well, it and, and not any auditor. It was an auditor to go in and make sure that they're spending government money appropriately. And in, in, uh, apparently their normal mode of operations is to go in and, you know, and kind of cut spending. But in, but instead they went in and said, holy crap, you have all these Windows XP PCs. You're being way too tight. So, so yeah. Quote, in the report last month, the board of audit warned the company not to be so stingy. <laughs> yeah. And specifically for security concerns, which is kind of, hey, that's nice to see. Hey, you know, you got to upgrade off XP for security reasons. Right. Nice. I like it. Yeah. It, back to your point. It's, it's, it's interesting to see an auditor, you know, an audit group whose main charge is saving money. You're ma- making that kind of a, a you know, a, of an observation that's obviously not going to end up at least initially saving the money. I, I would assume it could potentially save more than $30 million if something bad really happened. But anyway, my point was that, you know, as as time goes on and IT becomes more and more and more and more commoditized, I've got to believe that probably some you know similar to this this group here more and more organizations are have got to be looking at their you know windows 7 saying it does everything we need you know it it our people know how to use it it runs all the applications we need and why why do we need to go spend you know 30 or 40 million bucks to upgrade it i'm not saying it's right i'm just saying that i think that over time, that kind of mentality is going to start taking hold more and more. I agree. Uh, I would say the same thing along the lines of your main business applications. How many upgrades to Word do I truly need? How many different ways to create a spreadsheet do I truly need? Absolutely. Um, and at some point, that will become commoditized and stabilized. Now, the flip side, of course, is patches and support and end-of-life and security patches, right? So Microsoft can dictate when you need upgrade based on that alone. Right, right. But, uh, you know, I, I, I wonder if at some point there's going to be somebody coming along with some innovative solution that lets you, you know, I, which I can't even imagine what that would be right now, to, to well, quote, protect your investment. Right, yeah. No, I think that's a good point. Um we're actually talking about something pretty major here, which is a shift away from continuous innovation in IT to a steady state, which as soon as we think we're getting close to that, things change. So I've predicted that a couple times and been completely wrong that we were going to get closer to a steady state. Now, from a security standpoint, a steady state is a wonderful thing, but it doesn't you know that's not what our IT economy is built upon. Yeah, I mean my, software my, economy. Right, Microsoft doesn't make money by continuing the crap out updates to Windows XP. Right. Now, I've heard some rumor that Windows 10 may take on a bit of like a continuous update model as opposed to big monolithic updates, lots of little mini service packs being le- released over time. Hmm. And, you know, kind of a la Chrome being on version 42 now kind of thing. Interesting. So, I don't know. I mean, if that makes some sense. We're kind of in a com- continuous deployment model then, which could cause enterprises a lot of heartache. But for the home market, it, it could make some sense. Um, you know, in many ways, we've gotten to a point where the CPUs and memory certainly have outstripped a lot of the needs of the operating system. But of course, operating system vendors are very good at filling that back up. So I don't know. It's um, it's an interesting world. And who knows, maybe tablets and smartphones and that kind of stuff will will really cause the IT, you know, the desktop and laptop and Windows and, you know, PC world to kind of slow down a bit, innovate a little slower. It, it could be. I mean, it's, 
I, I, I just, um, I, you know, I, I, when I, when I look at the macro scale, and maybe this is not the podcast to have this discussion. I just, you know, I, I think the the value that the average company derives from the continued innovation in Windows operating systems and in Microsoft Office, you know, is is plateauing. I agree. Right, and so now now the only marginal benefit you get by upgrading is you get security patches, and you know, you know, maybe uh, maybe that the person you can hire out of college knows how to manage what you've got now <laughs> instead of a. <laughs> well, in theory, there should be some enterprise functionality improvements as well. Um, certainly, we see that on Windows Server side. Uh, well, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I agree there. Um, in, in fact, I would say that definitely on the server side, we're still seeing, I, I think, considerable important innovation. And I could certainly envision Microsoft building in functionality into Windows that enterprises would like. You know, perhaps a really solid virtualization platform. Um, you know, is one. You know, you look at the third-party stuff out there that they could build internally if they really wanted to drive a reason to upgrade. Um, Beyond just hey, you've got to do it for support reasons, and we don't sell the old version anymore. Right. Yep. All right. Well, I think we philosophized enough on that one. Our, our next story comes from Dark Reading, and the title is Zero Day Malvertising Attack Went Undetected for Two Months. This is one of the stories we were going to talk about last week, and we just ran out of time. Um, although it was a different actual article. Um, this one is interesting. They kind of tiptoe around which uh, ad network was involved. Um, the one, the one I uh, was going to talk about last week, had no problem pointing out that it was DoubleClick. Um, but, but in any event, there. Uh, the story here is that there was a zero day being exploited in uh, Flash. I think it was Adobe Flash. Yeah, Adobe Flash Player for two months. Coming through, you know, the, coming through this, the the ad network, um, and they they don't really have good metrics on exactly how many people were, you know, were hit. But it was it, these were ads that were being displayed on some significant websites like Daily Motion, Huffington Post, Answers dot com. Oh, Answers dot com, really? Uh, <laughs> the New York Daily News, How to Geek, Tag dot com. And and others, and and so you can imagine that, you know, potentially there were a lot of people who visited that, and I guess the payload ultimately was crypto, crypto wall or crypto locker. How do we miss this for two months? Well, you know, so that's an interesting question, and as I understand it, the reason is that a lot of these, <clears throat> a lot of these attackers are getting pretty smart. You know, they, it's shocking. Oh, I know. I know. It is shocking. I, they're, I did that, no, they they can't change their tactics. That's not allowed. <laughs> so so they will, uh, you know, they will uh, intentionally not serve up the malicious content, uh, you know, to to people who they or organizations they think who you know would potentially notice. So you know, they're not going to. They're certainly not going to show it to Google, um, you know, or probably you know domains or IP addresses owned by Symantec or you know any of the okay, security but, companies. But I'm I'm a company, right? And uh-huh. so either one of two things occurred. Either no enterprise got popped or they suck really bad at detecting it and tracing it back to these sites and reporting it. I I believe it is the latter actually that they, you know, I, so I was talking with Bob, and uh, and you know Bob runs into lots of organizations in the course of his work, and um, it is becoming increasingly common for uh, you know for for employees of these companies to get crypto walled or crypto lockered, and and I think it's happening. And this is just my my take on what Bob was telling me. It seems like it's happening at such a rate that. There's really not a lot of investigation going into it. It's they're you know, not, yeah, they're not doing the root cause analysis. Yeah, it's like, oh, here's another one. Did it come in by email or by website? I don't really care. Jeez, you know? I, I don't disagree with you. I just, 
man, that just is such an indictment on on the defensive industry. Uh, you know, and I don't know exactly what the payload was, but no FireEye caught it. No, you know, no other sandboxing technology caught it. Nothing. You know, those are really clear at saying, hey, this is bad stuff, and it came from that website. Right. Or if it was and reported, was it ignored? Did we have a failure on reporting? I don't know. Right. I just, man. And the other thing that occurs to me, something we used to say a lot is, you have to assume websites are going to be hostile against your endpoints. Yeah. Even even yep. known good websites, right? So... What do you are you allowing your users to run an ad blocker right in their browser <clears throat> oh, oh and by the way that you know uh, I, I like to go back to um, ad block plus oh that's true ad block plus you know that is the primo ad blocking thing for Firefox um, you know by the way Google pays as I understand it at least Google pays ad block plus to not be blocked yeah. You know, so uh, so you know. There you go. Um, I think the the point is that you know we have to get off, and hopefully, hopefully, most people are off of it, right? But you know, it's not just going to porn sites and gambling sites and where sites that are dangerous anymore. I mean, certainly those are dangerous, but you know, if you visit the Huffington Post on the wrong day, you could you could end up having a having a rough week. And that's not a political commentary. No, no, exactly. I mean, we saw it with NBC.com, and uh, I mean, just this is happening all you know quite often, right? And I, it, it's obviously a very effective tactic because you know, for so I, I don't know what the marginal cost of an ad, to run an ad is on you know Huffington Post or whatever, right? But you got to think that. Being able to drop, you know, even some small, relatively small percentage of crypto lockers on computers is going to net you a crap load of money. That's true. And, you know, in theory, these ad networks are doing something to vet that this is a malware. I would love to know their stats on how often they reject things being, you know, suspicious. Right. Right. Uh, you know, at the same time, why are we even allowing ads to be able to serve up anything that's executable? You know, yeah. I get it. That's yep. the infrastructure. You know, I, I, Flash isn't exactly executable, but you know what I mean. Right. It's just, ah, uh, <laughs> there's so many ways to do this better. Right. Yeah, and I mean the the easy the easy and cheap way, by the way, is to use something like you know, not certainly not AdBlock, but something like NoScript. But but again, yeah. no script, you know, and I, I re- it's, it's a hassle, and most organizations, most enterprises, won't deploy it. Right, it is a hat. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's Sorry, a hassle. I didn't mean, didn't no, no, steal your thunder there. It's a, it's a big pain in the butt. Most organizations deploy default IE, and here you go. Have a nice day. Right, right. Uh, or or Firefox or Chrome, depending on who their IT person is. Right. Possibly, I would say the vast majority of large enterprises are still on IE. Yeah, fair enough. Six, right? Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm not picking on IE. I'm just saying that they aren't thinking of the browser in the same level of hostile environment that we are. Right. And, you know, that should probably change. Right. But but at the same time, there is not a great solution. I mean, I, I've tried running AdBlock, or not AdBlock, but uh, NoScript, Personally, on my on my own personal system, and it is frustrating because so there's so much content out there that relies on scripts running, and uh, yeah, you know, and it, that would drive users crazy and the help desk crazy in a heartbeat. Right, I, and I, I you know I certainly can't apply it to my wife's computer because she would drive me insane. She would claw my eyes out. But I think. You know, we're kind of skipping over that as a as a humorous point, but I think there's a really key message in there, which is that you can't deploy technology that is too difficult or too onerous to use, or your users are going to go around it or complain, or like you said earlier, you know, you're going to get pulled into the CISO office or the CIO's office demanding you remove it because the execs and the sales guys can't get their job done. Right. So you have to find that balance of stuff that is usable, 
but still effective. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, Adblock Plus is one of many that, yeah, it sucks, and people pay to get by them. But I promise you, I run Adblock Plus. I am sure that I have not seen malicious code because I run Adblock Plus. You mean uh, no script or Adblock Plus? No, I mean Adblock Plus. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there are people, you know, I've been running Adblock Plus Plus for many years, uh, long before it came out that they were, you know, pay to play. So one of these days I should probably reevaluate that. Hipster. (laughs) But all that being said, I really do feel like it's probably blocked a lot of crap that I would have gotten otherwise. Oh, I'm I'm sure. I'm sure it would. Um, Or sure it has. So... You know, the, the, this goes back to something that that I've talked about quite a lot, and I'm pretty passionate about. Is there there's very few perfect technologies to solve this problem. Um, there may be some, right? I, I don't know uh, if they're out there. You know, it's, it's, trust me, there are people out there who who tell me that they do have the perfect solution to this. And some of them might, I, I haven't personally vetted them, but I guess point they is, all say that. well, I know they all say that, but, but in any event, this is, this is a relatively simple, um, you know, a simple equation. Don't do stuff, you know, don't, take your really important stuff and separate it. You know, don't, don't browse the internet on the computer that you use to, you know, to, to transfer money in and out of your company bank account or, you know, or, uh, or check in, check out your source code if possible. I mean, you have to kind of go into it eyes open. If you do that, you can lose your pants. Well, let's, let's play this out. Let's say this is the average secretary who is going to Huffington Post gets popped Mm-hmm. With not a crypto locker, but something that, you know, just some sort of rat or, or whatever. And then they come in and start moving laterally. Mm-hmm. You could follow your advice and still have the bad guys get to those servers or, or desktops or whatever they are that are doing the, the, the sensitive sensitive things, especially if they're tied into the same AD domain. Certainly true. No, I'm not saying that this pocket case that you came up with is a reason not to do it. I don't disagree with you, but it's not completely solving this problem. No, that's, that's very true. You're right. Yeah. It is making it, it's raising the bar of difficulty for the bad guys to get to your more sensitive applications, which I agree with. Right. Well, I I guess it is protecting against what I would call the more commodity types of attacks where, you know, they're, they're going to try to get a man in the browser or, they're going to try to lock all your files. Um, you know, I, I think if you if you start when you start talking about the lateral movement, you know, it's it's the gloves are off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we can always, you know, we've been doing this a long time. We can think of any way somebody could get around something. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, right? The, yeah, exactly. There's no perfect solution, and, and we as IT guys, security guys, tend to, you know, get mystical in our, well, what if you did X, Y, Z, then they did this and they did this. Aha. Well, therefore your original point was pointless. No, we're, we're all trying to find the balance to make it more difficult. Yeah. But I mean, I've, I've probably seen 500 or a thousand of the commodity banking Trojan Z-Bot attacks or crypto lockers for every instance where I've seen somebody come in and do, you know, lateral movement with a rat. You know, it's just certainly the lateral movement case is very damaging when it happens, and it's hard to protect against. Uh, but it's it's not the most common thing by any stretch of the imagination that you have to worry about. So you got to think about you know what are you trying, what are you trying to accomplish? And so anyway, we beat that one to death. Yeah, right. that's true. But you know that's what we do here. That's right. Our last story comes from CSO. The title is Credit Card Terminals Have Used the Same Password Since the 1990s, Claims Researchers. Man, I hope he's wrong. <laughs> so uh, so the story here is that uh, at the RSA Security Conference, two researchers, David uh, Byrne and Charles Henderson, 
gave a presentation that uh, basically they they said in their assessments of uh, retailers, they found that about nine out of ten terminals made by a particular manufacturer, Verifone, use the same password. The password is one six six eight one six, and um, you know so Verifone actually did acknowledge. Uh, to this reporter, I guess, that they, in fact, do use uh, a default password, but it's a different default password. It's Z66831. And they, of course, you know, encourage uh, their customers to change the password. But apparently, according to these two researchers, the the customers of Verifone believe that the password is unique to them. And, you know, because I, I, I was, was thinking, you know, it's it's really too bad that something like PCI wouldn't, you know, address default passwords. Clearly. They should really think about that. They, I mean, they could actually make an entire requirement around changing default passwords. And then they could have people who audit to make sure you've done that. That's true. And they could call it something like a quality, uh, I don't know, maybe a QSA, right? I don't know. Anyway, um, it, it's kind of disappointing. And the thing that struck me with this is I wonder how many other instances there are where, you know, we collectively, we believe one thing when the other is true, like, you know, like this, this password bit, you know. So you, you think that you're, you've got this unique password, but it's the same as everybody else. And how do you how do you get to that point? And how do how do you not challenge it? You know, how do you not how do you not I don't know. I'm it, this is I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around clearly this one. we need like an underwriters laboratory for IT care. That's what you're saying. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And by the way, I don't actually believe that. I'm just being silly. I, I I don't know what we need, but gosh, how how can it? Uh, it 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 really hurts my head to think that there could be that many people out there that pervasively thinking that you know, and it's not like they're not beholden to some you know pretty weighty. Security standard. I mean, you know, these these people are forced to think about this. What is it that we always say? It's a business decision made by an executive. But but is it? Or or in this case, it could have been a stupid oversight that nobody realized aside from the engineer who made it. Over and over and over again. That's what kills me. I mean, I, I can I can understand some amount, but you know, ninety percent. I get yeah. I guess kind of what I'm driving at too is that we can look at something and go, "That was absolutely asinine," and it is. But as we've said over and over on this show, there are times when executives are making decisions based on what they think is in the best interest of the company. Yeah, and may choose to accept a risk that the rest of us will look at and go, "Are you crazy?" And that that's fair, but I I, I feel like this isn't one of those cases where there's you're probably right a risk. You're probably right. I mean, to me, this seems like that the lesson to me is we need to challenge assumptions more often than we do. Maybe. Yeah. You know, if the assumption is that oh yeah, you know, Verifone came by and dropped off a pass, you know, dropped off a. a a pause terminal and they gave us the password, you know, not to assume that it's a unique password to us. I get that. But if you're the guy trying to get the pause terminals deployed and you've got a, you know, 30 to get done today and then security shows them and says, Hey, we want to check some stuff out. And now it gets in the way of getting your business done. And yeah, I don't disagree with you, but look at the, again, as we say over and over again, what are the incentives involved? Yep. Uh, well, I mean, I, so, obviously so either, you're right. Obviously you're right. No, either either you uh, have a business that puts a priority on risk mitigation 
and security auditing controls and you've trained and built the business expectations around we're going to have to do this stuff so build it into your timelines mm-hmm. or as is often the case productivity and and you know revenue comes first and security is just running along next to the cart trying to see what's in it right and uh i think that's more likely the case yeah. Or they looked at it once early on and vetted it for whatever, and then after they said, yeah, it's fine, go go buy it, they never looked at it again. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, uh, and then there's the QSAs. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the QSAs. How, how do we end up here with this? They trusted the vendor. They've audited it a thousand times, so they just... Grab that section of pre-built audit findings for that vendor's version X and throw it in the document. I mean, but it just seems like one of those easy things to check for, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, maybe, it, what, maybe, maybe what we're discovering is PCI is not perfect. Okay, fair enough. So, yeah. Great. <laughs> so, changing topics. Uh, I had mentioned on the show a couple times that I was giving a talk at B-Sides Atlanta on basically cleaning up the digital legacy of someone after they passed away. That finally, thankfully, thank you, thank you, B-Sides Atlanta, got posted. Uh, it took a lot of work because there were some technical issues, but... Volunteers worked their ass off and got the video of my talk and all the other Beside Atlanta talks uh, posted on YouTube. So if you're curious, uh, I, I will beseech Jerry to put it in the show notes. Also, just go to YouTube and search for Besides Atlanta and my name, Andrew Callett, and you will find the talk called Online No One Knows You're Dead, if you're curious about such things. Yep, it was definitely a good talk worth watching and uh, worth considering for your own life in your own affairs. So anyway, uh, with that, I think we'll call it uh, a show. So thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. And as usual, if you have any comments, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. I think I'm mostly caught up on email. Uh, Definitely love hearing from our listeners. Uh, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg. You can follow me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. Uh, you can find show notes, including the link to Mr. Kellett's talk, on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. And with that, we will call it a week and uh, talk to you next time. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.